Hi, I'm Trevor Cochran and this is The Garden Gurus Live, a weekly show where I'll share seasonal gardening advice, feature a variety of gardeners from all across Australia and give listeners the opportunity to interact and ask your garden questions. To join the chat live and ask your gardening questions, all you need to do is like our Facebook page and tune in every Friday at 12pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. This program is brought to you by The Garden Gurus and Scott's Performance Naturals. Scott's Performance Naturals is the 100% natural and sustainable way to grow and feed your garden. Backed by years of research and developed by scientists, the technology employed enhances natural processes, allowing extra strong growth. The Performance Naturals range contains organic materials such as Nature-N, blood and bone, seaweed, biostimulants, manure and feather meal to improve the soil, and encourage microbial and earthworm activity. To find out more about the Scott's Performance Naturals range, head to lovethegarden.com.au. For The Garden Gurus Live, that's what it's all about. And it's your chance to ask a heap of questions and get them answered. We're also going to introduce you to the experts today. I'm very excited to have Greg Neighbour joining us very soon. He's a technical director at Evergreen Garden King. Greg, I've known for a long period of time and there's few people who know their stuff better than Greg, so I'm really looking forward to chatting with him. And of course, later on, I've got uh, Bonnie Marie joining us all the way from Melbourne, and uh, she is a delight. I suppose first up, the important things that you should be doing in your garden right now is thinking about supporting plant growth. As the weather warms and the daylight hours get longer, plants start to really move. And if you don't get your basics right, so if uh, it's not raining and you don't have moisture, and if your soil's poor, or maybe you haven't given it a boost at all, you're gonna find nutrients are a big problem if you're not supporting that growth. And Greg, as I mentioned before, is um, one of the absolute gurus when it comes to his knowledge. He's worked in this area for a long period of time. And um, today I want to ask him a little bit about Osmocote, controlled release fertilizers. And this is the latest technology. Greg, good morning to you. How are you going? Good, good yourself, Trevor. Yeah, good, mate. It's great to see you. I appreciate you beaming in from your uh, your living room, which is uh, which has yeah. sort of become the way of life. I, I love it. I love it. That's great, mate. Well done. Um, tell us a little bit about where you live and how things are going just at the moment. Uh, so, living in Sydney, um, the Waratah being our state flower. Yes. Um, and uh, you know we're still. Uh, Social distancing and keeping things well. New South Wales doing well. I'm sure you've seen on the on the news. Mm. And um, you know, so we're trying to get back to the office two or three times a week. And um, you know, things are generally all right. I was just down the shops, and most people are wearing masks and still. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed it keeps going that way for all of us because it's certainly been a challenging time. But one of the things that I know um, would be a factor for you is that you are running research trials all the time, developing new product. Um, nothing ever appears on the Evergreen list without having gone through your brain, and most of it's a result of um, the amazing research you do. 
I, um, I wanted to ask you about Osmocote. It's, it's a groundbreaking fertiliser. It's been, been with us for a long period of time, but, but this controlled release fertiliser technology is vitally important for home gardeners and, and for the environment broadly, isn't it? Greg, it's, it's this thing of um, controlled release fertilisers really revolutionised everything when it came to home garden care because back in the day when, when I started uh, as an apprentice horticulturalist, it was very much about mixing your own fertilisers, getting your blends right, and most of these were fast-acting fertilisers that if you used too much, you did a lot of damage. And when that was left in the hands of the home gardener, Sometimes it'd be good, sometimes it wouldn't be enough, and sometimes it'd be way too much. This is where Osmocote revolutionised everything and it's changed everything forever, hasn't it? Uh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it, I suppose it's, it attests to its, uh, its value in that regard because of its uh, success in both commercial horticulture and, and consumer, mm. um, that its use for the last 30 or 40 years since its inception um, you know, has, has been, the uptake has been incredible from particularly the commercial arena. Um, and uh, <clears throat> travelling through the consumer, you know, the, um, the ability to, as you said, the, the old UC system of being, of mixing up certain uh, conventional fertilisers and with a spoon putting them on top of every pot every three or four weeks. Yeah. In a nursery, in a commercial situation where there's 10,000 plants or 100,000 plants, it was certainly a, a major labour. Um, controlled release fertiliser revolutionised that and your ability to apply once and for that then to feed the plant continuously for up to 12 months. And this is the thing, right? So this is what makes it so good is that it has a commercial basis. And the reason it has a commercial basis is because nurserymen can trust it to do that consistent performance day in, day out over many months and just it reduces labour, but most importantly, it, it allows plants to feed the way they should, the way we do, and that's small amounts on a regular basis instead of just large dumps and then, you know, nothing, you know, feast and famine sort of technology, which is what we used to have. Correct. So, you know, the, the conventional fertilisers, as you pointed out, once you, you apply it, um, it solubilises and there's a big, you know, burst of nutrient uh, the plant can respond, but the the amount of salts, uh, fertilisers are, are, are salts, those salts in the soil uh, have a detrimental effect to the soil and potentially to the plant. So putting too much on, you can end up burning the plant, um, putting too little on, and of course you don't get the response. Yeah. I think the, the other interesting piece is that the rate that you're applying is sort of compensating for the fact that that conventional fertilizer is going to leach from from the soil and remove itself from the plant so the rate you apply needs to compensate for for those losses yep. whereas controlled release it, you do not so your rates are much lower and greg the the bit that i alluded to probably in the opening piece about the environment is that uh, particularly with me being based over here in Perth, Perth's built on effectively a kilometre deep um, pile of sand. So for gardeners, it's very, very difficult to, um, to feed at the rate 
that the plants needed on a consistent basis because you've got such leaching going on. And of course, at the base of that is a rock base and then that overflows back into the ocean. So the underground aquifer that sits underneath is quite deep in water, but all of that water, if it's high in nutrients, flowing into the Swan River and Canning Rivers and then into the ocean, we were seeing massive algal blooms back in the 70s and, and early 80s until uh, there was a really strong push to get more people at, at a consumer level converting their fertiliser technology to controlled release, to going to Osmocote and being able to trust that it was actually going to do the job, which uh, it did. Absolutely. So, the you know, the research we've done in, in Perth and Western Australia over the years uh, in regard to that specific issue of the fact that you are sitting on sand and sand uh, in itself uh, doesn't have the capacity to hold nutrient, not just from a leaching point of view, but from a chemistry point of view. Uh -huh. So... With a controlled release fertilizer, you don't need uh, potentially a lot of um, capacity to hold onto the fertilizer within the soil because the fertilizer is continually being delivered by the osmocote over the period of time. Which means the plant can take it up without it actually passing below the roots and then into groundwater. Correct. So most conventional fertilizers, we've, we've done work where we, we put an isotope marker on the nitrogen and can trace it in the environment and in the plant. Yep. And we can see that with conventional fertilisers, you're potentially losing up to 60% of those fertilisers through leaching and volatilisation, where it, it gases off, the ammonia gas comes off yep. from the fertiliser. Um, whereas with uh, controlled release fertiliser with Osmocote, um, the losses are either, either negligible or, you know, with high rain, maybe 15%. Okay. So, it's, um, yeah. it's a... It's a pretty interesting um, thing, and, and it doesn't just apply to Western Australia. You know, if you're in the Sunshine Coast, northern beaches in Sydney, Mornington Peninsula in Melbourne, we're all dealing with sandy soils in the, that environment, and that's why this fertiliser technology, particularly in that environment, but, but across most soil types, I'd say all soil types, um, really does make a difference to the health and the quality of the growth of the plants in your garden. And now's the time to be putting putting this out, isn't it? It's going to get the best results if you're fertilising in September, early October. Uh, absolutely. So, um, you know, as the as the plant starts to, and there's there's several growth periods in a plant where the nutrient requirement is is significantly increased. One, obviously, in spring when we're putting on foliage and and you know as it warms up with growth, but also um, I think anybody who sees a plant coming to flower, it's quite amazing how much biomass, how much vegetation a plant puts on mm. when it's coming to flower and it does it very quickly. So the way we kind of generally look to have an ideal situation is that we put the osmocote in the soil. Um, that's the, uh, the meat and potatoes, let's say, for mm -hmm. the plant, the maintenance base fertilizer. And then at periods of time when there's a high load of, or high requirement, i.e. spring flowering, um, you you would use a, a, a liquid, a water-soluble or liquid fertiliser. Just to give them and a boost. boost. Yeah, give them a boost at that time, but you're confident then that continuously you've got this feed under the ground that's um, that's maintaining them. Mate, the, the probably last question I have for you is that um, different plants, like different people, have different nutrient requirements, and uh, depending on where they originate from, they, they may need a different blend. So some plants require more potassium, for example, to assist them in their growth and flowering, whereas some require more nitrogen. So you know, particularly turf often loves um, a good feed of, of greening 
um, nitrogen. So I, I might um, come back to you on that a little bit later on if I can. Um, I'll leave you to have a think okay. about it. And in the meantime, I might answer a few questions and uh, help a few people out along the way. Okay, I'll hang here. Thanks, mate. Now, questions, when it comes to questions, there's a heap. Um, this morning, Keenan from Victoria uh, wrote in to ask about growing watercress without running water. And the answer is yes, you absolutely can, in fact. But if you, if you um, have a situation where you've got a wet, sodden ground, watercress will actually grow in that environment quite well. Um, I grow it at home in my aquaponic system because it's a brilliant way of sieving out all excess nutrients. It'll take it all up and it helps it grow really well. Um, but watercress can be grown actually in hanging baskets as long as you're maintaining the water. Um, what you'll find is if you don't give them enough water, it starts to become a little stunted and it gets a red colouring in the foliage. So that's a... Um, that's probably an answer for you, but uh, yeah, you could grow it in everything from a fish tank to, uh, to still ponds, right through to running water moving through, because it will be a great sieve of excess nutrients. Hope that answered your question, Keenan, and I uh, hope all's well in Victoria. Rita has uh, asked a question. Uh, my pot plants have a lot of uh, ants in them, and uh, will the plants be okay, or do I have to get rid of the ants? Well, it's not really good to have um, ants in your pot plants, and th it's actually, they're telling you something, because that's saying that uh, it's nice and dry. So it's a nice dry environment for them, which is probably not the ideal environment for your plant's roots, which means you have to probably look at trying to get water to flow through there and for moisture to be held longer in the soil. And the way you do that is to apply a wetting agent. So I would recommend a liquid wetting agent in a watering can and I would drench that pot. Don't let it overflow, but just keep filling it so that it's really saturating all the way through. And without really having to do uh, use any chemicals, the ants will get up and move away because that's not the ideal environment for them. So I hope that helps you, Rita. Anybody out there with ants in their pots have got a few issues and they, you do want to get rid of them. Um, Susan's written in to ask about uh, soldier beetles or harlequin beetles, as some people call them. How do you get rid of them? They tend to be quite seasonal, so they'll come and go as the population gets bigger. Um, my solution is probably not necessarily the one that you're expecting, but my solution is to bring more birds into, into the garden. And uh, if you can bring a bird feed or, or even better, a bird bath, you'll bring wattle birds in and they love them and they will go through them and clean them out. They're only ever going to bring the population down to a manageable level. But basically what's happening at the moment is because of ideal conditions, there's been a good growth period and you're getting lots and lots of them in, in, in a larger population. But nature has a wonderful way of balancing everything out and by bringing more birds in that will solve that problem without having to throw chemicals at them. Deborah, my ash tree is dropping yellow leaves. Is there anything I can do? Well, your ash tree, I'm assuming, has to be the evergreen ash because all the others would only just be putting new foliage out. Um, if your evergreen ash is dropping leaves, it's probably a suggestion that your soil moisture levels are starting to drop and it's going through a natural process of dropping them off. If the whole tree is turning yellow, that's a completely different story. I would think that it's probably soil moisture level is starting to change and what you're now seeing is the tree literally managing the amount of foliage that it's got on, which is something they do wonderfully naturally. Um, 
So I wouldn't go doing an awful lot, just make sure there's some irrigation to that tree and, and uh, the tree will balance itself out. Lisa's asked, how does she stop snails and slugs eating her daffodils? You can get those little snail houses, so you can put a bait on the inside. You can use beer traps, um, and that's probably one of the, the simplest things to do is a, a little can of beer about that big, about that wide, pop it in. The snails, they love drinking beer. Slugs love drinking beer, but they can't handle their alcohol and they drink and they fall into the container, drowned, and that takes away them from, or takes away their eating your daffodils. Now, we were talking before, and Greg mentioned something about uh, about flowering and supporting growth, and I've got something pretty amazing going on in my garden at the moment, and um, I wanted to share it with you. So I have avocado trees, small avocado trees at home. They're about um, five years old, and this is this is the the tree. So this is a Furetti avocado. So sometimes they call those ones alligator pears, but um, each of my avocado trees, which are still quite small trees have around a million flowers on them at the moment. And I was watching last night, and this is one of the things that uh, garden, garden lovers really should do because the plants will tell you what's going on, or Mother Nature will. Um, and I was thinking to myself, we should get a pretty good crop. About 99% of the flowers that I produced will fall off. But um, there's a really interesting thing going on with my avocado trees, and I'm, I'm going to raise it as something to look with yours. And that is that the pollinators that are active around my trees, even though I've got a beehive right next to them, it's not mainly bees. In fact, um, my, my European honeybees are probably a very small portion of it. I've got a lot of hover bees around at the moment and a couple of native bees that are active on them, but I've got a lot of flies. And this is a really interesting natural thing with, uh, with certain types of plants, but it's unusual to see all three of them active. And this tree has a very peculiar odor um, to, to the flowers. And it's very difficult to describe it. It's very pungent, but it's pungent in a way that's attracting both bees and flies. Now, the first thing you should know about avocado trees is that they produce a lot of flowers with a whole purpose of the flowers performing in a particular way. So they have what they call protogenous dicotogeny. Now this is a process where the flowers open as female. So they have male and female flowers. The flowers actually on the very first day that they exist, they open as a female flower and then the next, and they'll close that night, and then the next day, they open as a male flower. So the pollination actually needs to be moving back and forth with these pollinators coming back in and out quite regularly. And it's why I was so fascinated by the different types of insects that are active. But the whole idea of these producing so many flowers is to actually get that really strong odor, that smell that you will smell around a, a, a big healthy avocado and bring as many insects in as possible, because I'm expecting also at night that there'll be beetles and, and other insects also active. It's very, very interesting. Now, uh, one of the questions that we get asked a fair bit is, do you need male and female avocados? Well, my answer is they have male and female plants, but you have to partic uh, pick particular types of avocados um, to flower all at the same time. So this, uh, the ideal is to, cross-pollinate between different varieties. So right at the moment, this um, Furette 
and my Hass are all in flower. You might find that you've got bacon, um, charwell, there's a few of them out there uh, that are quite common and ideal garden trees that are all coming into flower at the same time. And that's where you get these different groups. So I'm hoping that I'm gonna end up with a great crop, but there is one other thing that you always need to be aware of with avocados, and that is that they have what we call biennial cropping habits. So every second year, you get yourself a great crop, and then the following year it might be a small crop. Last year was a small crop for me. This year, the, the flowers are really pungent, really, really pungent. There's a lot of pollinator activity and I'm expecting very good pollination. Now, the other thing is that avocados produce fruit and you can see uh, there's, there's a house and there's a bacon sitting here, but they produce fruit quite differently. And what I mean by that is that um, they're actually picking these varieties in Western Australia right now, but not where I live. My trees are only just coming into flower and it's all got to do with the state slowly heating up. So avocados are actually a cool climate tree that come from South America and they come from highlands. And so the fruit that's being picked at the moment is actually coming from the Manjimup region, which is actually quite cool. And their crops are only just coming through from last year. Whereas my crop, which was picked two months ago, um, is well and long gone, and now it's in the process of producing new fruit. Avocados are really good for you. They've got so many different things. There's, there's 64 calories per fruit with an avocado, but they've got a massive amount of vitamins. There's 20 different vitamins and minerals. There's vitamin E, there's vitamin K, B6, and it also has uh, the ability to assist with decreasing the risk of things like heart disease, diabetes, um, I think uh, there is that other issue that uh, a lot of us have, and that's when we're eating a lot of high nutrient uh, foods, we start putting on weight, it assists with that. And of course, it is a great source of monounsaturated fatty acids, which are great for our body and our health. So putting an avocado in is my plant of the week. I would thoroughly recommend it. Now is the time to be planting them because they'll be putting on growth and performing. So I hope that helps with avocados. Right, I've got a couple more questions and then we'll fly into it um, with uh, catching up with Bonnie. Now, uh, Julie, uh, Pink Lady Apples, she's got uh, Pink Lady Apples small and shriveled. And what is she doing wrong? Well, she shouldn't have apples really coming on just at this moment in time. It's really just the flowers should be setting. So it would seem like your trees come into flower very early and it may do one of two things. It may drop that fruit, uh, that fruit may start to develop, uh, but yeah, I'm not quite sure. Just on apples, uh, whilst we're talking apples, here's the two highest sources of beneficial plant um, phytochemicals that are great for our body. So of all the different types of apples, Pink Lady and Bravo were deemed to be the highest sources. And now's the time to be getting your hands on them because in a couple of months time, they'll all be going into cold storage. And the longer a fruit has been sitting in cold storage, the less caloric value you'll get out of it, the less goodness it starts to break down every day after being picked. So to be eating them now, that's my advice. I hope that helps Julie with your pink apple, but it is a bit unusual and we have had some strange seasonal things. Now, uh, joining me right now is Bonnie Marie Hibbs. Now, you all know Bonnie from The Garden Gurus, and uh, I thought we might ask Bon, who's at work today at Garden World in Melbourne. How are you going over there, Bon? 
Yeah, we're going good, surprisingly. <laughs> With everything that's been happening, but it's looking really positive and um yeah, so I'm at work today and the staff are really happy and cheerful, so that's always nice to nice to come into. So things things are heading in a good direction, aren't they? Yeah, it's looking a lot more positive, especially with the daily numbers. Um, I think I haven't really looked at it today, but I'm pretty sure I heard on the grapevine that it's around about 14 or 12 today, which yes. is um, positive. So it means it's staying consistent, which hopefully, fingers crossed, means in four weeks' time we can start to reopen slowly, which would be good. Yeah, well, hopefully it's even earlier than that because certainly the improve um, numbers every single day almost um, is an exciting prospect for us yeah. and and everybody over there has gone through so much and yeah. our hearts go out to everybody um, for, for what you've been through. So hopefully, um, yeah. hopefully, yeah, it just continues heading in the right direction, Bon. Now, tell me a little bit about what's happening in the garden. Um, so spring's really sprung. Um, all the fruit trees have got their blossoms and they've come into leaf. Um, I planted a whole bunch of peonies, which I believe there was a segment on Gurus about those. And um, did, yeah. through winter, I brought yeah, I brought I brought heaps of them, and they've all sprouted, and some even have flower buds, which has surprised me. So, That's so the garden's looking really nice, and it's sort of it's a bit of, it's nice for us here in Victoria because um, with all the lockdowns, at least we're seeing something happening outside, and it's making a bit of excitement. So, it's been good. It's been nice. Absolutely, and, and there is no doubt. Um, for everybody who's locked down at home, um, there's no shortage of Garden Gurus opportunities to watch at the moment across <laughs> Channel 9 and obviously uh, Nine Life. Um, and of course, you can watch it when you want as well on Nine Now. So there's lots of tips and hints. And speaking of tips, gardening on a budget. Have you got any tips for anybody out there gardening on a budget at the moment? Yeah. Yes, I do. I actually have a few dot points in front of me in case I forget one. But um, it's something probably that I've been doing for a few years now and one of the biggest tips I would say is to start with seed and that's one of the most inexpensive ways to start gardening and it's a really good way to be able to have a lot of things for a decent amount of money so if you've got a budget of ten dollars you can pick up a few plants with seed packets and then you can grow quite a quite a diverse range of um, varieties as well so what I did last year which was actually featured on the show was I um, grew about 60 different corn. And what I did, and I've actually got it here, is I collected the seed off some of the cobs as well. So this is probably about, I don't know, 800 grams worth of seed. And I've got probably about 10 packs of these at home from all the different corn plants that I grew. Wow. And I've actually, so that's the, that's the mini blue popcorn, that variety, that's a really yummy one, so you can make popcorn out of it. But, um, Collecting your own seed is also a really good way. So number one, you can grow your plants from seed and then you can get heirloom varieties in particular, which you know you can get seed back off them and yep. you can harvest that and then you can regrow them for years to come. And the same with a perennial plant, you can grow a lot of different perennials from seed. So it's just another way of doing it. It is more time consuming, but it's quite rewarding at the same time. Um, and then tip number two. Is I was going to say just on, just on the popcorn bond, they they look amazing. Those um, those heirloom varieties, uh, the different coloured um, kernels are are awesome. Can I ask you a question? Because I I grew a heap of them last year myself. I think I had a black, obviously yellow, but I had white and pink yep. as well. Um, all yeah. with varying levels of success with the, the number of kernels, but 
I, I initially treated it like traditional corn on the cob and it wasn't that enjoyable. It's a, it's a very flowery kind yeah, of... Yeah, I made that same mistake. I um, So I grew a whole bunch of the rainbow ones and I thought this will be one really fun to grow, but I thought, oh, I'll get heaps to, to eat and I tried eating one and it was like rubber. <laughs> yeah. And then I was, I, me, I was like, oh, yeah, it's a, stock, it's a stock feed. So for cattle and things like that, it's really good for them. But you can do the same thing with the buttery types or the butter forms. Um, they're really good. So you can harvest from them and grow them again from seed. And same with tomatoes, things like that. So it's, it's quite a fun way to go about it. Yeah, but sure. Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> but um, so I've got heaps of things I've grown from seed for the season. Um, and it means I've got twice the amount of plants for the money too. But another really good tip is um, to try and make your own home compost and fertilizer. Mm -hmm. um, so with fertilizer in particular, there's a herb called comfrey, which I think you've grown it before as well, comfrey, which yeah. you can um, harvest the foliage, which is quite high in nitrogen and you can do, I think it's, I've got to double check the number on it, but I'm pretty sure it's 48 hours you soak the foliage and it creates a really rich nitrogen fertilizer that you can dilute down and then use on your, on your plants as a mm -hmm. nitrogen feed, which will help with foliage growth um, yep. and then home compost can't go and can't speak enough about composting from home food scraps Australia yep. has a lot lot of food waste so you yeah, know using that waste. to re-enrich the soil yeah that's is green, green waste so there a lot of people uh, raking up the leaves and um, all the the green debris prunings and so on um, and not putting it mm -hmm. through a, a, a chipper or a shredder and just putting it into the bins mm. and going away and basically going off to be, hopefully to be recycled, then all that organic material that's sent off and goes through the recycling, generally ends back up in soil yards. So mm. you're ending up going back to buy that as a compost to put on your garden. So why not compost it yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And something I've been doing a little bit of research on just out of my own interest is food forest gardens. And that's one of their biggest concepts is that you, allow any foliage that falls on the ground, you allow it to naturally break down. Same with twigs and branches. Yep. Of course, you can chop it up into small bits so they break down quicker. But the idea of leaving that litter on the ground is that it puts those nutrients back into the soil and then the plants that do remain, or the same plant in some cases with deciduous, they use that to feed them. So it's a really interesting way and it one creates less work. You don't have to clean up as much, but um yep. it's it's a it's a really good method to it's, reducing the amount of fertilizer that you have to do. To do it is one of the, the absolute absolute foundation principles of permaculture, of course, is the chop and drop mm -hmm. philosophy. And and it's yep. it's very much about putting uh, those organics putting the carbon back into the soil because uh, as the yeah. plants grow, they're taking it out. So if you can chop and drop, you're actually putting it back in. So it's it yeah. sort of slows the draining of the goodness out of your soil or the yeah. labour of putting organics back into your soil by just using the materials exactly. you've got. Yeah, definitely. And it helps also with um, suppressing weeds because if you can fill your garden up with beautiful plants that you want, that way you don't have to worry about weeding as much because there's less surface area that you have to worry about. But but that's just something that I've been sort of trying to practice more is doing that leaf litter um, in the garden and um, it's worked quite well for me. Um, and then the other good way to save 
money in the garden is to upcycle or recycle, which I know we've talked a little bit about before on the show. Oh, you're um, the queen of upcycling. <laughs> yeah, well. I, I, I used to love doing it heaps. I haven't done it as much recently, but I am going to get back into it. But like plastic pots, um, classic one, if you've brought a plant from a nursery, that plastic pot can be used to raise a seedling or a seed or even cuttings, which is one of my other points, but recycling them if you can, perfect. If you um, can't use plastic pots, um, always take them to your nursery just because they can recycle them. But yeah. trying to use things that you've already got and with the upcycling, I think I did it with you years ago when I first featured on Gurus, which, which was like a wooden tray, which yeah. I turned into a, a garden bed and or a little makeshift pot. And that's another great way to... Sort of and it looks, it looks natural and looks fantastic. And when they're overflowing with plants, they look look just sensational. Now, um, there was, uh, we actually have questions flowing through and folks, please don't be scared to ask your questions. But one of them that was brought up was a really good one and it was about how to improve, um, I think it's dead soil or red soil, but it doesn't really matter. Um, it's just dead and it's got no microbes in it. But we're just talking about um, putting those organics into it. And they, they are a fantastic yeah. food source for microbes. So putting as much organic material into the soil, particularly if it's well composted, is only going to enhance your microbial life. So if it is a red soil, like the red soil you get in the centre of Australia or in the north, um, there is no doubt um, that that soil has lots and lots of minerals in it, but it tends to lack that organic material. So this is a, a good good lesson or point to, to make. Yeah, it's so important to try and put back into the soil if you can, especially if you're wanting to grow good quality crops and things like that. Organic matter is one of the key things. Um, yeah. yeah, with red soil, I haven't got much experience with it because I'm from Victoria, but um, yeah, it's definitely very rich in, in minerals. But it tends but, to be rich in minerals and that's the red color that you're seeing. You know what, there's mm -hmm. another question come through. Aubrey has asked, what do rock minerals do in the soil? And I, you know, I'm not bragging, but I was in the Cocos Islands last week. And one of the problems they've got, so the Cocos Islands, to put it into context, is halfway between Australia and Sri Lanka. Um, it's closer to, to Jakarta than it is to, say, Australia, to Darwin or to Perth. And the islands are actually uh, created on top of two atolls. And so um, it, they're pretty much just sandy, sandy soil structures, very, very sandy, very basic. And, um, the, the Clooney's Ross family that founded them um, 150 years ago tried bringing in deer and in more recent times also tried goats on one of the islands. And you tend to think goats will survive anywhere. But in both instances, both the animals ended up slowly dying out. And it's because they developed diseases that were a result of lacking mineral nutrients. And and when you're asking what rock minerals do, our bodies and the bodies uh, and, and plants as well have very complex dietary requirements when it comes to micro and macronutrients, those, those vitamins and minerals that we need. And if we lack them, mm -hmm. and, a, and a classic would be sailors wanting to take citrus in the old days with them as they sailed, because if they, they ran down on vitamin C, they would develop scurvy. And this was a, a significant problem and a, and a common disease that we just don't see anymore. Scurvy, people don't get it because we've got high levels of vitamin C and nutrients in most of our diets. So this is why it's really important to make sure you've, you're putting rock minerals in because plants, minerals 
are not made by microbes. They're not made by anything. They were literally rained down on us over billions of years from the stars and they literally are in layers in the soil. But once a plant takes them out and uses them and we take it away and we eat the fruit or the vegetable, it's gone from the soil. So if you're not putting it back into the soil, the next time the plant tries to grow, it won't have all the nutrients it needs, so it won't be as strong. And that's where these diseases, they become more prevalent and more prominent and a bigger problem. So to answer the question about why, that's why you need to be putting those, those rock minerals or trace elements, as, as we in the trade often call them, back into your soil and, and particularly in productive soils on a regular basis, right? Yeah, definitely. I don't think I could have said it better, actually, Trevor. <laughs> but no, it's it's so important. And it's just all about keeping the balance within that soil. Because without a healthy soil, your plants won't be performing as to maybe what you wish to. So, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and you do commonly see more deficiencies, unfortunately, as a, as a result of that. So, well, the, so, well, the truth, not, truth of the matter is for all of us gardening in, in small suburban sized lots and particularly growing vegetables, it's very intensive mm. farming we're doing. We're farming at a level of intensity that most farmers wouldn't undertake. Mm. And in quite a short period of time too, so we tend to do maybe crop rotation or we change out things a lot quicker and then we sort of it's easy to forget that the soil might be depleting a little bit quicker in a short period of time as well so um my golden rule especially with um growing produce I'm, I'm quite fortunate i've got really good soil but every single time i put a new plant in i'm always putting compost and i do actually put some minerals in from time to time as well so i'm trying to make sure i, I balance it out every time i'm growing something yeah it's, yeah it's vitally important and crop rotation is the other thing that's very important don't yeah. grow your tomatoes folks you should all be planting tomatoes at the moment but don't plant them where you grew them last year try and rest that yeah. soil for a couple of years and it's those same reasons i just explained before i've got a couple more questions bond do you mind helping me with the answers <laughs> All right, so Isaac's in Melbourne. He's got a two-year-old Lisbon lemon and it's got really thick yeah. skin. Now, he wants to know if it's just a variety of lemon or is something wrong? No, this this is usually... Um, so it could be the um, Eureka variety, which is typically a bigger lemon anyway with a thicker skin, but yeah. very common in Melbourne for the rind of the fruit to be a bit inconsistent from season to season and it is to do with rainfall and dry spells throughout the winter season as well. Um, one, it's, it's, it's a funny thing to explain because when you have sudden bursts of rain um, which haven't been consistent over the season, you'll find that the skin of the fruit will suddenly grow and you might get ripping because the inside of the fruit has suddenly swelled with a lot of moisture. So it's, it's like the skin hasn't grown quick enough. Mm -hmm. And then in other circumstances, if it's been dry for a long time, that skin grows and grows and grows, and suddenly we get a lot of rain, so the inside grows. And then when you finally go to harvest it, you've got a really thick, thick skin compared to flesh, and it can be a bit variable each year. Um, to, to sort of stop it, you can't, unfortunately. It's just weather dependent. Um, but a variety that's very good and very consistent each year is usually Lisbon. Um, yeah. It's a thinner skin variety, and it just tends to not have that issue as much in Melbourne, whereas the Eureka's, some, I've had one which was huge and I cut it in half and I think the flesh was about that much in it. It was, yeah. I reckon, an inch and a half of skin. Yeah. Wow. And it just varies. But it, it, but it is a climate, climate issue. So 
Fine. I love it. I was going to say, I couldn't have explained it any better myself. Well done. We're both doing well. Next one is Keng. Keng has asked, how do I get rid of leaf hoppers amongst my lettuce? Mm, they're, they're a pain. I, um, I find that I try and keep everything organic in my garden when I've had them. To be honest, it's been trying to spurt them with the, with the hose and there is natural little sprays that you can try, but are not super effective but i find yeah. if you have chickens chickens are great they they get them um they're very good at finding them in the garden but the best thing you can do is to try and space your plants out make sure you've got plenty of airflow you can put some sticky traps up as well yeah. um in areas that are really um i guess you could say affected there is new sticky traps actually out on the market which have a protective shield on them so that way none of our little indigenous birds get stuck in them which is a yeah. really great thing I am. Um, but that's I, I'm a big fan of the sticky traps, but I do get in trouble from some viewers when I recommend them because of that issue of insects and birds. Some of those traps can hold them, so um, trying trying to use those ones with a protective frame around the outside is a, is a good way to go. There's no doubt about it. The interesting thing about those sticky traps is so they're bright yellow, or you can also get blue ones. They're a lot less common. Um, the blue ones attract mites and thrips. And, um, yeah. and aphids quite well, whereas the yellow ones will still do aphids, but they're really good at th things like flies, so fruit flies, leaf hoppers, any of those, they'll, they'll attract them. And of course they fly on, they stick to it, and they can't get off. And mm. it's, uh, you know, for those people who are critical of us recommending these traps, the reason we're doing it is because it's a lot better in a small area to bring those insects there and, and trap them there than it is necessarily to be spraying chemicals broadly across your garden. And when you're killing one particular insect, you're also killing a lot of other beneficial insects as well. So we're trying to find the best solution for a difficult problem and that's controlling pests that are out of control. Yeah, in between. And it's really nice when you get these manufacturers or the producers um, of these products and they really do try and listen and come up with a solution. And I think that that sort of safety, I guess you could say, out of body to those traps has been a really good thing and we're seeing a lot yeah. of positive you feedback know, on that, which and, is great. And that's really yeah. what we're about at the Garden Gurus is constantly showing the latest innovation because the industry works so hard to do all the right things. You know, you, you mentioned plastic pots before and some people are critical of plants being in plastic pots, but the truth of the matter is plastic, once it's made, can be reused forever. So those pots, as long as you're recycling your pots, please recycle them because they just end up making more pots in the future, which is fantastic. Yeah, and a great thing as well within the nursery, um, our supplies take back the the trays that the stock comes in and they reuse it. So it's not as if they're discarding it and then they're buying new ones and they're actually reusing everything. Yeah. As long as one thing, we all can give it back to them and things like that. But it's nice to see that this recycle surge has come into the industry. And then also they do grow in biodegradable pots now with some products, which is really- Which is cool to too, isn't it? Yeah. Um, can I throw a couple more questions at you before we let you go? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, the first first one comes from Matthew in Melbourne. The, everybody in Melbourne sending through questions, which is great. It's great to one, see you, and I hope you're all doing well and hope we can answer your questions. Matthew from Melbourne's question is, six months ago, he planted a hedge of 28 lily pillies, backyard bliss. Now, this is a variety I'm not familiar with, but you might know it, Bon. Um, 
20 of the plants of the 28 are flourishing, eight have yellowed leaves, no new growth or vigour, and three plants have leaves that are starting to drop and one's completely lost its leaves. Now, um, Matthew says he believes they could be waterlogged from clay soil that's poor draining. Can you suggest another plant to take its place that'll tolerate poor draining clay soil? So, yeah, it definitely does sound like a, a moisture issue. So Backyard Bliss is a new variety that we sell in Melbourne. We've had it for a few years now, and it's just yeah. a bit more columnistic of a grower. But um, typically with them, you can have a beautiful hedge, and if one part of that hedge is a little bit more shaded or the soil dips down more, if it's a bit heavier, you will notice a difference in growth. Um, yeah. But the fact that the dropping leaves and that is definitely a sign that your water table might be quite high. And we have had a lot of rain this season as well here in Melbourne, yeah. um, which we've had more today. So you probably find they are unfortunately drowning a little bit in that soil. Um, a plant which we, we have um, is the ficus. They're a big plant though, but they are really good for hedging if provided you've got the room um, yep. and they will withstand that soil. But if your soil is very saturated, I would recommend if you do pull those plants out to turn it over, try and dig maybe some compost through it and then you yep. can try and put those ficus in. But, but do let it... Gyp gypsum is a great solution for um, for soils. Uh, we use it. We tend to use it over here to add calcium into the soil, improve the soil structure, and because it's pH neutral, it doesn't affect. Because in coastal conditions, we often have quite alkaline soils, so it tends to be a a, a good thing to use. But dolomite would also be effective uh, over there in Victoria, wouldn't it? In heavy soils. Yeah, we we recommend both those, um, especially here in the nursery and good old compost. You can't beat compost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Matthew, <laughs> Matthew, e even with the existing plants, maybe punching some holes in around the outside and putting some uh, gypsum or dolomite into those holes, just getting some air into the soil. The gypsum as it gets in, particularly if you dig it in, it's a lot better to dig it in, but if you can, can try and get it into the top, maybe 200 mil or so of soil, it is going to improve it a little bit. And we are heading into the warmer season, which will then mean that um, that you're gonna go from one extreme to the other possibly. The other thing with lily pillies, they can sulk over winter, especially if it's their first winter um, yep. from planting so you can also give them a little bit of time to see if they do recover the ones that have completely shredded may not but the ones that are a little bit yellow they may green up yeah, and fair. come good and then usually by their second winter they're a bit more winter hardy and then they'll be usually a bit better off but i do i do love that word that you just used sulk i have a lot of uh, a lot of people that write into me saying their plants are sulking at the moment but as spring comes we start to get a little bit happier uh, so i think they will too i've got one more question for you then i'll let you go glennis in victoria has asked this very important question and it is completely seasonal so um, I'll let you answer it. Can I plant tomatoes now? Um, so if you're further out from the suburbs, so I'm in Gippsland, for me it's too early because um, we can still potentially get a frost. So if, if you're further out from the inner city, I'd say wait till October to maybe mid-October. Mm -hmm. If you're within the suburbs or in the inner city, um, I would say you can plant them now, but do provide them a little bit of protection if you are expecting a frost. So it's just a matter of looking at your, or looking at bomb actually, and just trying to forecast if there is any frost due, but I don't think we'll have any more now. So I think you'd be okay if you're in suburbs, 
country, wait maybe another three weeks. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you've got to, got to avoid those frosts. And it just, you know, yeah. t- tomatoes are a warm climate plant. So wait until you get a little bit of warmth. Those, those longer, brighter days and, and warm weather does them the world of good. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining us. It's lovely to see you. It's nice to hear you and make contact and all that. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I look forward to being back soon. I'm looking forward to having you back on the show very soon. Hopefully it's quicker for us all. This program is brought to you by The Garden Gurus and Scott's Performance Naturals. Scott's Performance Naturals is the 100% natural and sustainable way to grow and feed your garden. Backed by years of research and developed by scientists, the technology employed enhances natural processes, allowing extra strong growth. The Performance Naturals range contains organic materials such as Nature N, blood and bone, seaweed, biostimulants, manure and feather meal to improve the soil and encourage microbial and earthworm activity. To find out more about the Scott's Performance Naturals range, head to lovethegarden.com.au. And I'm going to fly into a couple more questions then. We've been able to get Greg back on, so we're, uh, we're heading in the right direction there. Rita wants to know about a capsicum plant. It's looking sick and not producing. What can she do to assist it? Well, we just talked about warm weather. Capsicums love warm weather. And I was looking at some chilies I've got in my garden. They're still full of chilies at the moment, but they're definitely not happy. So um, right at the moment, getting your getting some warm weather into your plants. And there is a, a very cool thing I saw um, that Garden Express sell, and it's it's these little hooped frames, and you can put these these plastic. Uh, coverings over and it's one of the tricks that commercial growers often use to be able to get a crop in a little bit earlier. So you can get those kinds of plastic covers. It could be a surround around the individual plant or if you've got a big long row of them, you can actually put it over and and run a a big long line and that will help them, Rita. But look, to be quite honest, in four weeks' time, they're going to look happier. Uh, In probably eight weeks' time, they should actually start producing flowers and fruit quite comfortably and you will have an early start to the season when it comes to uh, harvesting. Cherie has asked, can you grow carrots from carrot tops? Um, Honestly, Cherie, you probably could. The question is, would you do it? I wouldn't do it. I would grow from carrot tops. I would grow seed and I would plant the seed because it's only six weeks from sowing your seed in deep sandy soils to harvesting beautiful, fresh carrots. And they're such an easy thing to grow from seed. Now's the time to be sowing them. So I'd be doing that. Shirley, she's got a a more difficult one, a plague of lawn grubs that she's had earlier. And she she thinks she's seeing them on her roses, which are barely alive. And some of them she believes have died. And how do you deter them from roses? It's a really good question. I've never seen lawn grubs attack roses. I would suspect that there's actually something else going on with those roses. Sometimes you look at one thing and you think that that's what the problem is, but in actual fact, it's actually something completely different. Generally, if your roses aren't bouncing back right now, if you're not seeing lots of growth, it's either too cold or you've had a frost, or alternatively, there is a problem and it's probably something more like rose canker, and you'll actually see that on the on the bark of the stems of your plant, particularly the older sections or sections where if you've pruned them over winter, you'll see this callousing, this scarring almost of the tissue. And that's a, that's a sign that there's quite a problem. And the best way to treat that is to give them a bit of a dose of copper oxychloride or the old Bordeaux mix is also something quite good. And what that does is it sterilizes the bacteria and any fungal infections 
away from the, from the plant. I would give the plant a feed with a really good controlled release fertiliser after you've done this and that should help a lot. Speaking of really good controlled release fertilisers, Greg Neighbours back with us. Greg, hello mate, sorry for the technical hello. issue we had earlier on. That's all right, fine. This is, the, um, this is exactly what we've just been talking about in that this is what you know, Osmocote really does so well is, is get the balance of nutrients right back in the soil so the plant can take them up when it's ready, right? Correct, you know, um, and it was interesting, you had um, uh, an inquiry about thin um, skin on, on lemon, on citrus fruit. Yep. Uh, commercial growers would be adding phosphorus at this point because it's related to the levels of phosphorus. Right. Um, so to get a thin, a thin rind, it's time to, to add some phosphorus, uh, obviously some nitrogen, um, magnesium for uh, the yellow leaf that often citrus gets. And so Osmocote uh, has products that are formulated specifically around those needs. Um, and you'll see some, some of our liquid feeds uh, similarly a citrus uh, feeds Great. because of those sorts of inputs. That, that's exactly, that was the point I was, I was sort of moving to just before we lost you before, but that's, that's why you do so much research on specific blends for particular purposes. And obviously a lot of this research was actually founded in the commercial industry. So you were helping citrus growers in this instance um, and you developed a special formula of, of these nutrients to deliver these results. And this is where home gardeners are now benefiting because that formula is now available in specific blends of Osmocote, right? Correct. And so all of, all of our formulations are, are from the, 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 as you say, the research that we do in, in the commercial arena, um, where uh, it's not just about um, the amenity of the tree or whatever, it's usually about uh, being profitable, being able to produce a crop, you know, profitably from, from their point of view. So much more critical issues from a nutrition point of view with uh, commercial crops. Yeah. Yeah, now just run through the different types because we've all got different types of plants in our gardens and uh, I, I tend to weigh heavily into those edible plants, but you know, I've got vegetables, I've got fruit trees, I've got obviously got citrus. Um, there's a blend pretty much for everything these days, herbs. Well, the good thing about, um, uh, you know, an Osmocote controlled release fertilizer is that uh, it's the, the, the base nutrition is fairly similar for, for, for many, but it's other things that are very specific to different crops. So we have fruit and vegetable, of course. Um, fruit and vegetable has high calcium because things like zucchini and tomato get blossom end rot. So we're seeking to, um, to uh, prevent that from happening for the gardener, um, unbeknownst to them in many, in many occasions. Uh, we have rose, it's got uh, higher phosphorus, higher uh, iron content. So the leaves can be dark green and the flowers can be uh, vibrant and, uh, in their color. Um, these are things that commercial rose growers know about uh, yeah. and we kind of secretly bring them through our products so that the success that the consumer has is there. We have um, our Camellia azalea citra, um, uh, acid loving plant, if you will, uh, yeah. which is again looking at uh, higher ions and uh, different ratios of nitrogen and potassium. 
And, and that's a particularly yeah, important yeah. thing. There's a, there's a message in that one as well. A lot of people say, when do I feed? And um, the beginning of the growth season is also really good. But in the case of camellias and azaleas, they've actually just gone through the biggest expenditure of energy they're going to do all year, and that's producing masses of flour. And when they get to the end of that, it's very easy to see them suddenly just sit there and, and look dormant and not even really do anything for the rest of the year, unless you boost them and encourage some further growth and support the plant to continue to do that, right? Correct. So at this point, you know, um, as you say, the flowering is pretty well finished, um, depending on where you are in Sydney. Um, we're fairly well finished with flower and camellia. Um, but now that we, we've got a lot of fresh new growth coming on. So a lot of camellias are, are hedge plants and so, or, or topiary, and um, uh, that new growth's important so that next time you cut it back, you're cutting it back to fresh wood. Um, yep. You know, so yeah, fertilizing anything in, in spring uh, is is an ideal situation. Brilliant, mate. Listen, thank, thanks so much for your time and I appreciate you um, jumping back on with us. Um, it, it, it is a very important time to be feeding and one of the one of the things that worries me the most with the environment that I live in, and I have a, a small creek that winds through my property and uh, there's very, very good biodiversity and life in that creek. And the last thing I want to do is have any nutrients leaching through. So I am absolutely steadfast committed to controlled release technology that those fertilizers are the future and for anybody who is a little bit prone to throwing a little bit extra on um, their plants so generally the blokes who don't read the the label and the directions which is a lot of people um, and they go oh look that doesn't look like much I'll, I'll put an extra handful on well that's an extra 50 or 60 grams but when you're doing it with a controlled release your likelihood of burning the plant is so much less. So that's why people should be using this. It's better for the environment and it's better for the plants, isn't it? Indeed. It's a catchphrase we used to have was greener than green. Greener than green. I love it, mate. I've been, acu I've been accused of that more than once myself, actually. <laughs> Greg, Very it's good. great seeing you. You're looking well. Right. Stay, stay well and you thanks know. so much for your time, mate. Very good. Good to see you again, Trevor. Take care. Cheers. That, uh, that gentleman has so much knowledge and uh, so much experience. He's just dedicated his life to, to the industry and uh, the, the people at Scott's, which is now Evergreen, are, um, are obviously very, very lucky to have him as part of their team. And when you look and you see any of these, these new products that come through the Scott's range or the Osmocote or any of those, um, you know, a lot of that is Greg's work and um, we're all fortunate as home gardeners and as commercial producers to have his level of knowledge and dedication. Now, I've got some more questions. You're throwing them at me left, right and centre. I'm going to do my best to try and help out. Lindy in Brisbane, our broccoli's being eaten to the stalk. I have the same problem at the moment, Lindy, on the edge of my brassica beds. Um, I have rabbits doing it though and I'm kind of, I've come to the conclusion that I'm going to share a little bit with them. You can put some net covers in. Um, I suspect what you're getting, I don't think you'd be dealing with rabbits. You could be, but I, I, I doubt it. I suspect that it's obviously some kind of uh, insect. And if you're going to try and deter them, um, maybe the best thing to do is to look at using a chilli-based spray. Chilli garlic tends to be a repellent for a lot of caterpillars. Um, and if you do need to treat them, then something like Dipel 
is, uh, is a good thing to control caterpillars, if that's what they are. I would love to see a photo. It's sometimes it's a bit hard for us to actually ascertain exactly what it is. So sending us a photo, posting it up on our Facebook page gives me the ability to have a bit of a look. Uh, Anouk has also asked for an easy remedy for lily pilly beetle. Now, just noticed that there's holes in the new growth and some of the older leaves and they found a little green beetle on a nearby plant that isn't a lily pilly. Could that be the culprit? I'd really need to see the beetle because it's a bit hard to tell. Um, when it comes to controlling beetles, there is actually an old-fashioned chemical called carbaryl. I think you can still get it in garden centres. But you can also dust. Um, sulphur dust uh, is something that beetles hate, and uh, that is probably the simplest thing to do. So keep your eye out for that. Suzette in Brisbane. We're getting a few from Brisbane. Hello to everybody up there. Uh, my rose leaves are yellowing from the centre stem out. It's in a pot and otherwise growing well and flowering. Now, this is a classic instance of running out of, of those core nutrients that uh, Greg was just talking about. And in this instance, it's where you go for their specialist uh, rose and flower uh, fertiliser. Um, you, you might even want to boost it right at the moment with a liquid plant food. And um, there are liquid plant foods that are designed to be watered over the foliage for flowering plants and the, the effect of that is it's actually absorbed through the foliage. So you'll see an almost instant effect. Within probably two weeks, you'll see growth. Liquid feeding your plants right at the moment is a very, very smart way to go. Now, Diane, uh, we've had a tree cut down and the process has left a lot of fine pine chip on the lawn. Will this do any harm to the Kaikuyu lawn? Probably not, but maybe one way to get rid of that is just to get the blower back out. Pine chip tends to be pretty light and you could probably blow that off to the sides and if it's thick in any spots, uh, it should be okay. If the pine chip was really thick, uh, pines do tend to have um, a resinous nature of the sap and that can sometimes um, be a bit of a retardant to growth, so watch out. But being a Kaikuyu lawn or Kaikuyu as some people like to call it, it's a tough lawn and it should be fine. It should grow over as the weather warms up. Wow, we've been busy. There's a lot been going on and thank you so much for joining us. That's it for this week's show. Um, we are going to be back next Friday. I'm looking forward to joining you then. Um, we're also obviously back with the Garden Gurus this weekend. Now it's important you check your guides. We're just about to move to a standard time right across the country, but the times do vary. So make sure you check them. And if there's anything you've missed because we've flown through so much stuff today and there's lots of great information, you can always go back, watch this clip again on Facebook or catch the live stream um, and previous episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcast and Podbean. They're all three um, podcasting opportunities for you to sit back and listen. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you next Friday at 12 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Wherever you are, please join us. I'm Trevor Cochran. Thanks for joining us. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Have a lovely weekend. Dig, 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 digging around. Dig, 
dig, dig, dig, dig in the ground. I got my spade, I got my hoe, I got my rake, and I'm ready to go. The Garden Gurus is back on your TV this weekend. Now, we know that this can be a little bit confusing, so listen carefully, folks. We're on 9 and 9 HD for New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, and the Northern Territory on Saturday at 12.30pm. For South Australia and Tasmania, we'll be on your screens on Saturdays at 4.30pm. And for those in WA, tune in Sundays at 5.30pm. And on Nine Life across all states, you can watch the Garden Gurus team every Saturday from tomorrow at 5 p.m. Dig, 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 dig in the ground. I'm feeling good in the ground. I got my speed, I got my hole, I got my rig, and I'm ready to go. Dig in the ground.